0: Let me pray for us, and then we're going to start a new series this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are not the only church here in this location, but we are a part of your universal church. And this morning, and in fact, throughout the day in different time zones, your people are gathering to declare praise and worship to you who are worthy. In fact, you are much more worthy of any praise or worship we can even muster Uh, But, God, we come, we come together, and we lift our voices collectively, and we, as your people, gather to make sure, Lord, that your name is praised and adorned. Lord, we thank you, too, for the truth that we find in your word that doesn't just give us steps for living a life, but it tells us who you are, that we might know our God in intimate relationship, be reconciled to him. And then, yes, get on with living a life that we were intended for. But thank you for what it teaches us about you and about what you're doing and about how we fit into that. So, Lord, help us now as we go to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and begin this new series. And I pray, Lord, that we would glean much from our time there. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Uh, This past year, my wife and I, uh, we each turned 40 years old, and it's been rough, I'll just tell you. Um, I find that there are things that I used to know. I remember vaguely knowing them, even though I know them a lot less than I think I ought to know them. Does that make sense? I can't even articulate it. I'm forgetting stuff, and I'm forgetting stuff that I ought to have known. Uh, but in any case, for uh, Amy's 40th birthday, which came before mine, I thought, you know, I'm going to get her a really nice romantic gift here. Uh, I'm going I'm to get her what every girl wants, um, a cast iron skillet. How about that for romance, right? Big time. Maybe not, but... L- Actually, I didn't just get her one, but I got her two. Because that's right, true love. Two is always better, right? Anyway, so I have these, these skillets, and I, will, I brought them in here for show and tell, a little bit to absolve myself. Um, I don't know where to put them now. We'll just set them like that for now. We'll start with this one. This is the pretty one. Uh, these skillets, now you're, you're laughing, but let me, let me get on with them here. These, uh, I've actually did put a lot of thought into this, and I thought, you know, what would be really fun would be to get something that's old, because we're going to be old, <laughs> And let's get something that's old and and that has some value and is kind of fun and then let's let's set about the process of restoring it and so that's what we did so these two skillets uh this one's actually from the 1920s and this one is from the 40s and they're made by a company called Griswold and if you can look carefully on the back you can see it stamped in there can you see it this is like the eye test in church here and uh these are actually coveted collector's items, if you know anything about cast iron. And uh, they're right there with, if you know Wagner or Erie or some of these other, other makes. And they really are something that uh, are, they're quite sought after. And there's a few reasons why. The iron in these is really a superior iron, so you can make them with a lot less material. And therefore, they're lighter and they're easier to club your husband with, <laughs> um, for one thing. And and the other thing is the finish on them. Uh, They've taken a little more time on the surface than what you see in modern cast iron. And so they have a better non-stick sort of performance out of them. And so this was actually quite fun to get these and to go about the process of restoring them. And that was quite involved. Um, We, First of all, uh, when I first got them, they were in horrible, horrible shape. And the process of restoration involves, first of all, putting them into a lye bath for about a week. And periodically taking them out and scrubbing off all of the old material. And you're basically just stripping these things down to their bare metal. They actually will get back to almost a silvery state when you're doing that. And so you're just scrubbing off all the old patina and all the old food and whatever else is on there, the old seasoning. And then after you get it all the way down to bare metal after a week of soaking them and scrubbing them, then you put them in a vinegar bath. And that takes off any residual rust, and it neutralizes the lye. And there you have it. You have this perfect raw metal project to begin with. And then you set about the the seasoning process. And we use the flax uh, flax flaxseed oil and we would coat it get put a thin coat on it and then put it in the oven and warm it up to i think it was 500 degrees but i'm 40 i can't remember and then it was in there for a couple of hours and then it would come back down to room temperature and we did that five or six times to build up this uh this new seasoning surface and the end result is just awesome they're beautiful we actually display them in the kitchen because they're really pretty to look at maybe we need some more decoration in our house but Uh, and they perform really well as evidenced by this lovely apple pie with a strudel topping which was yummy by the way and this is maybe our family favorite here cinnamon rolls baked right in the cast iron and if you can see carefully you can't but if you squint maybe or just imagine In the places where a cinnamon roll has been removed, you can see how the glaze just beads up on the surface, and that's how it's supposed to work. So husbands, get your wives cast iron. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Um, It was a fun process uh, to kind of go through this, and the reason um, I did it was, you know, not. or the reason I bring it up this morning is... Uh, Because I wanted to illustrate a little bit of what's going on in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. What we find there is this beautiful restoration process in the people of God. The people of Judah in particular. Uh, We know that God has confronted uh, the rebellious Judeans in the prophet Isaiah. And he sent them off to a process of stripping down and tearing down. And uh, uh, chastisement, and he sent them into exile, and uh, and then we we're going to get to see through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah the rebuilding that comes, and the way that he seasons them and prepares them, uh, and builds up a heart in them of worship and love, and uh, so that's what we get to see here. So I want to just kind of back you up back up through what we have seen in some of our study here. Uh, over the past couple of months. First of all, we saw God warning Judah of sort of their disobedience and their rebellion, and he did that through the prophet Isaiah. Then we saw through the prophet uh, Jeremiah, and f- uh, specifically in chapter 29, uh, where God spoke to them like a, like a parent would sit with a child before discipline, explaining what's about to happen and why. Uh, God tells them, I'm taking you to captivity and you will be chastised there. And, uh, and, and, and he goes on to tell them how to live in that particular land. And he even gives them assurance that this captivity would only be for 70 years, but then they would return. He would bring them back. And that they would find him in relationship again. And that he would be their God. So he gives them that assurance. And then we went through the book of Daniel. And we saw the defeat of Judah. We saw the fall of Jerusalem. We saw the fall of the temple. And the people of God deported Babylon and beginning to set up life there and as we went through the book of Daniel we were really given uh, pictures of God's sovereignty through all of this through the rise and fall of one regime after the other in the midst of all of it God was in control and he was doing exactly what he said he was going to do uh, for the people of Judah Uh, he was stripping away the dross taking them down to their base preparing them that he might carefully season them for a life of relationship and obedience and proper worship. And that's what's been happening. And so the books of Ezra and Nehemiah really capture the fun part of this process, the seasoning, the restoration, the preparing for proper and good use. Um, And so here we find Judah's release from captivity, their return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple and the city walls. Um, And while it is oftentimes the rebuilding of these physical structures that kind of captures our attention and our imagination as we go through these books, uh, I think what we really need to see, what we are meant to see, is the rebuilding of the heart of God's people for himself. That's the rebuilding the restoration, the renewal that I really want your hearts and minds to be fixed upon. So the restoration project of God here is not just brick and mortar, although it is that. But it's the heart and the mind and the worship and devotion of God's people here. And so as we go through this, these two books together, I don't want you to hear building project. I want you to hear worship project. Preparing God's people for their rightful relationship uh, to him. Uh, So we're going to start with the book of Ezra, if you want to turn there. The book of Ezra, uh, in fact, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are really, uh, in the Hebrew arrangement of the scriptures, are really one book. They're together. They're not two separate books, Um, although they were probably written separately, and there's some reasons for that, which I won't bore you with this morning. But nevertheless, they tell really one story of restoration. Um, The book of Ezra is titled uh, for its author, and Ezra is the Aramaic... Uh, word for the Hebrew word which we've spoken of at times, ezer. Sound familiar? Ezer means helper, or means God helps. We first see it in the Old Testament in Genesis 2.18 when God makes Eve for Adam and refers to her as a helper, as his helper. And unfortunately for too long has that word helper been interpreted of Eve as some sort of lackey or sidekick or inferior person. And that's not at all what it means, and we see this here. Helper means uh, strong helper, God's helper. In fact, more often in the scripture, that word is used of God as the helper of mankind than it is any kind of inferior lackey. And so it's a good word for, uh, for women particularly, and it is used of God here throughout the scriptures as the helper of man, and that is what Ezra himself is named for. And here at the beginning of the book, we begin to see the powerful help of God actually inclining the heart of the pagan king towards the welfare of God's people. Uh, now, the book of Ezra was, was written in a date and a time, kind of the occasion has to do with uh, you know, uh, Judah had been back in the land, back in Jerusalem for something like 60 years, and they had reached a point of stagnation in some of their rebuilding projects. And so Ezra is really writing the book to sort of encourage them. And he's hearkening back to some of the ways that God has uh, taken care of them in the past and where God has shown himself to be faithful uh, to help them overcome some of the opposition that they're facing in this particular, this particular moment. And so it's written to at least the first two waves of returning exiles uh, to Jerusalem in order to encourage the fact, encourage them in the fact that God has been faithful to them and reminding them of how God has worked in the past. And so Ezra is just kind of holding up a mirror of God's prior faithfulness. He's saying, do you remember the ways that he has acted for you in the past? Recall them and let let those things prompt you into a right relationship with him going forward. So let's look at Ezra 1.1. It says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Now, the first implication that I think the original audience would have heard here is this, that God keeps his promises, God keeps his promises. Let's see if I can get this to pop up here. There it goes. Well, now we're skipping ahead. God keeps his promises. This is most likely not a new teaching for you. I suspect you're not sitting there going, oh, I never knew that. Never heard that before. Uh, But maybe you have not heard that or known that from this particular neighborhood of the scriptures. Uh, God keeps his promises. And I want to show this to you. In fact, now that I've told you to turn to Ezra, turn to Jeremiah, if you would, uh, chapter 29. And we're going to look at the promise. We're going to remember the promise uh, that was given to us there. And I would remind you of this too. Good teaching isn't just teaching us what we don't know. Good teaching oftentimes is reminding us of what we do know and what we need to act upon. In Jeremiah 29, verse 4, it says this This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried off into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. But this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me, When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Ah, this makes sense now when we see the beginning words of Ezra. That this took place to fulfill the word of the Lord. What God had said years prior is now unfolding. And so when Judah is hearing these words of Ezra and, God is, or, and Ezra is recalling these things that have happened to them, they would have been reminded, yes, the Lord does in fact keep his promises. Not in just some distant, abstract, academic way of other people somewhere else, but he has kept his promise to us and we're back and we're back in the land. And it would have instigated in them a desire to, to now fulfill their part of this. They're being called back to their right relationship with Yahweh. Now, there is something I think that's quite startling. There's, in fact, two things that are startling to me in verse uh, 1 here of Ezra 1. And I'm actually going to spend the bulk of my time just on that this morning. Um, You might look at that and go, What's so startling about the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia? What's so startling about that? Well, two things. Number one, uh, first of all, Cyrus isn't a God fearing man. He is a pagan king. He does not have faith in Yahweh. He does not have God the Holy Spirit entwelling him. And so maybe it leads us to ask the question how is it that the Lord acts upon his heart, leading him to make this proclamation that follows? I mean, we would definitely understand God speaking to, say, Abraham. Or Moses, or Joshua, or Gideon, or David, or, or one of these. We would sort of understand that. We have a construct for that in our, in our mind. Or the prophets Isaiah, or Jeremiah. But what is God doing getting mixed up with a pagan king like Cyrus? And using Cyrus to accomplish his purposes? Why is revelation of sorts being given to one who doesn't even revere the Lord? It's a little troubling. So, I pose those questions with no answers for you. Just want to provoke you a little bit. But here's the second, and maybe the even more unsettling bit for me, and that is this the text says that God moved his heart. Or, depending on your translation, God stirred his heart. So the surprise for me here is a matter of agency and what I mean by that is it doesn't say that God convinced Cyrus in his mind first and then Cyrus decided to act right it doesn't say that he persuaded Cyrus and then Cyrus inclined his own heart to obedience it it indicates that God himself acted upon Cyrus's heart uh, and I, I find that kind of shocking, in fact. And in fact, if you really want your minds blown, I don't have time to do it today, but it's, it's even, even more so the case, I would encourage you in your Bible reading this week. Isaiah 44 and 45. Go there and read from Isaiah, who is writing 150 years prior to these events. He tells of these events. In fact, he tells of them by naming Cyrus before his existence. His existence. For those of you who like apologetics and evidence from Scripture as to its truthfulness, uh, there's a corner uh, to indulge in. But it tells of these events that will, in fact, occur. And so my surprise here is not just that the Lord, it's not that he fulfills his word, that's not so surprising, but it's how he goes about doing it. It's the fact that he stirred the heart of Cyrus. And I think what we find here is this, that God does as he chooses God is sovereign over those who fear him and over those who do not. And the the point that I find unsettling a little bit is this, that God is sovereign over even our heart. God is sovereign over even our heart. Here's why this bothers me a little bit. I tend to think of my heart as my own domain, right? That's where I'm in charge, or so I think. I look at my heart, and from my own mind's eye, I think, you know, that's the fulcrum of my decision-making. That's the place from which I live my life. I make my decisions. My heart is mine. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to anybody else. I'm in control of this little piece of territory, if we can localize it in our chest. But, all right, I'm in control of this part. That's what I like to think you might get my cooperation, you might get my outward obedience, you might get my compliance, but I'm still in control of whether my heart's fully behind something or not. Right? That's how I tend to think of it, but this passage teaches us clearly that the Lord who is sovereign over all is sovereign over even our hearts. The, pagan's king, the pagan king's heart was inclined it was moved, it was stirred, it was acted upon by God Almighty to behave in such a way. Look at verse 2 and we can see what he declared. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may be living now, the people are to provide them with silver and gold and with goods and livestock and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, man, we see it again, prepared to go up, and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with the articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, had them brought by Mithrida, the treasurer, who counted them to Shashbazar, the Prince of Judah. This was the inventory, gold dishes 30 silver dishes, uh, 1,000, silver plans, 29, gold bowls, 30, matching silver bowls, 410, other articles, and so on and so forth. Chesh brought all of these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So we see that even God acting upon Cyrus' heart isn't just a one-off. It's not like a one-time thing that occurred here. We see that it's followed up again by the fact that he acted upon the people to... Enrich Judah in their leaving. God acted upon two people's hearts, so to speak, here. Now this, this idea, we might, we might think of God acting upon Judah's heart to return to the land and go, oh yeah, that was probably an easy maneuver though. Of course they wanted to return, right? But think about it for a minute. They've been in Babylon for 70 years. So it's not like they're returning to homes that are sitting there ready to receive them. They're returning to rubble. They're leaving a home, the only home that most of them have ever known, and they're going to a place that isn't. They're going to a land that is not yet built up. And I, I would just propose to you that that's a difficult move. And yet the Lord moved their hearts to go. And so I, the teaching again, or what I think we take from this again, is that apparently the Lord is sovereign over even our hearts. He stirs the heart of the pagan king. He steers the heart of Cyrus to enrich Judah along with all the people. He stirs the heart of Judah to return to their destroyed homes. The book of Proverbs tells us in 21.1, it says that in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. Hmm. And we're told again mysteriously that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so I say it again, our hearts are not our own. But God has jurisdiction there as well. And I think that has two implications for us. It's both humbling and it's encouraging. It's humbling because I think, first of all, many of us give ourselves way too much credit for perhaps the spiritual condition that we find ourselves in. And I would simply tell you this, if you're here and you love the Lord, it's because God has first moved in your heart. We love because he has loved us first, and drawn us to himself. And secondly, I think it, so it not only gives us humility in that, but I think it gives me greater confidence, particularly in my prayer life. It gives me confidence to pray for God's intervention in the hearts of others. I I don't know if you've ever found yourself in this, this kind of prayer. If you're praying that Praying to God that somebody else's heart would change, and you're thinking that they're the primary agent involved in changing their own heart, especially if it's someone who's rebellious or wandering, it feels a bit like a hopeless prayer, doesn't it? You know, so Lord, I'm praying for this prodigal so and so, and I really want their heart to change. And if I locate all of the agency of that heart change in them, they're rebellious. What hope do I have? But God changes people's hearts. God can do that. God does do that. And so I would ask you, do you have a rebellious son or daughter? A floundering spouse? An ogre of a boss? An unbelieving friend? A leader who is off course? A politician that, well, fill in the gap. Pray that God would change their heart. Because he does. And so that is humbling of us, and it is encouraging. We can pray with confidence that God, who has jurisdiction in the heart of men, believer and unbeliever alike, can change their heart. Ezra teaches us this, and I think we should pray expectantly that God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, can do it again in our time. Now, I need to nuance this. A heart inclined to the Lord is the result, again, as I've already said, of God's grace. Any move towards the Lord, on our part, I believe, is precipitated by God's prior move towards us. Movement of our heart isn't a sole responsibility of ourselves. And again, I think this should produce in us just an overwhelming sense of God's immeasurable grace. You look around your life, you should be overcome by God's goodness and grace to you. And if you're not, you're not looking rightly. You're only seeing what you think you have produced by your own hands and your own effort. And you're not seeing God's grace in your life. Again, we are here and we're at peace with God, not because we're so smart or because we've figured it out. But God came near and drew us to himself. Secondly, this is critically important here. God's sovereignty does not absolve us of our responsibility. And this is sort of the uh, unlikely conclusion that some come to. Well, if God is responsible for the heart, then of what consequences are action? But I would remind you this over and over again in the scriptures, we find the liberty of mankind that is appealed to in the scriptures, calling us to action that we might perpetually make decisions for the Lord. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, what? Guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. In Daniel 1.8, we see Daniel heading into exile, into Babylon, and, and we're told that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Later on in this book, in Ezra 7.10, we're going to find really in the key verse here, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. All of these passages are predicated upon the fact that we have some liberty of choice. And so this teaching that God is sovereign over even our hearts doesn't lead us to a place where we let go and let God and have no action or responsibility or activity in things. It's a both and, not an either or. And we see this throughout the New Testament. We're going to see it strongly throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. That God is sovereign and he is bringing his plans. He is fulfilling his word. He's bringing his plans to fruition. But God's people act in obedience alongside him as that occurs. It's a both and. It's the same pattern we see in the Pauline epistles in the New Testament. Where Paul continues to combine what we would call the indicatives and the imperatives. Paul's books are typically broken into halves. And the first half of the book is telling us, you are this. And the second half of the book tells us, therefore do this. There's an outline for every Pauline book right there, the indicatives and the imperatives. And so the sovereignty of God over even our own hearts is no excuse for inactivity. God's sovereignty does not produce in us the passivity of mankind, but rather it should give us a godly confidence In our action, because we know that God also is at work. Know that God changes hearts, therefore pray for that. Know that you are His, therefore live it out. We also are to cultivate a heart for the Lord. And this is one of the privileges and one of the benefits of these two books. We get to see how Judah, after they had completely bombed with the Lord and been disobedient, how they were carried off to exile, now returned to the land and re engaged the Lord with hearts. For worship. And I'm just really going to be introducing that concept this morning, but we're going to unpack it in the weeks, uh, the weeks that will uh, flow out. I want to ask, does this sound a little bit like double talk when I say that the Lord is sovereign over the heart, but you are to cultivate a heart for the Lord? I mean, it, it sounds like I'm standing on two sides of a line, doesn't it? Yeah, welcome to the scriptures. <laughs> That's about how it sounds. I've been thinking about that this last week and one of the ways that this is uh, kind of that has helped me um, arrange my own thinking was uh, it's back to school and we've got our kids. We're trying to get them all set up on their different computers and apparatuses and whatever they've got is so that they can do the things that they need to do. And our kids, you know, they range from ages 8 to 14. So uh, we've got adults in the house and a 14 year old and an 11 year old and an 8 year old. And so we don't have a one size fits all, you know, approach to. Uh, the internet or to phone use or to texting or to whatever else. And so one of the things that I've spent my time doing the past couple weeks is is assigning permissions to different things and ratcheting things down and providing good boundaries for who can do what, when, and how, and all of that. Uh, it's getting trickier, let me just tell you. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, this is a pretty good framework for which to think about this. So I, I can be the administrator over a, a device or a computer or whatever, and I can assign and give liberty to one within boundaries of what they can and can't do. And as I, I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, that's an a awful lot like how God works with us. He's the administrator. He can give seat licenses and user privileges, and he can ratchet them down, and he can change them. But he's got the sovereign control. But he does give to us liberty in our lives to make decisions and to live in obedience and to follow him. That was helpful to me. I don't know if it is to you, but... Uh, but we need to cultivate a heart for the Lord, and we're going to talk an awful lot about that uh, throughout this series. There's a book that I've been reading lately that I want to recommend to you. It's on the back of your handout. It's by James K.A. Smith, and it's called You Are What You Love. Uh, whenever I recommend a book, I, I just you know this. It doesn't mean I agree with everything in it. It doesn't mean I'm giving you a blueprint for life. There's some good, thoughtful things in there about how we construct a heart that is either for the Lord or for Uh, other things we also see in this uh, in this uh, section here that God provides for his people Um, I think many have rightly compared the remnants returned to Jerusalem to the great exodus of of Israel coming out of Egypt Uh, and we so we kind of get an echo here of some things that God has done before God's people leaving a place of captivity, enriched by its captors to go to a place that God is calling them to build an instrument of worship and to live as God's people. It sounds like a story we've heard before, right? And so we found this in the great exodus out of Egypt. We find it now here in Ezra coming out of Babylonian captivity, back into Jerusalem. Uh, Once again, they plunder their captors. Uh, And at Cyrus's command, the Babylonians enrich the Judean exiles and they come into their homeland where they need to rebuild the temple and a way of life that worships the Lord. Uh, One of the commentators I was reading this week said something interesting. He said, whenever we find a building project in the scripture, we find that God allows his people to plunder somebody. (laughs) And I, I kept thinking about our own building project here and our own expansion thinking, I don't know how you get that done. We haven't been able to plunder anybody yet. If you've got some ideas about that, let me know. Um, But I do take comfort and assurance in knowing God steers the hearts of the rulers and leaders, and he inclines them to those who fear the Lord. Who knows how God will provide? Uh, Who knows? Um, God providentially prepares the way for his people as he's leading them in what to do. And he enriches them so that when they come home, they have the resources they need to do what he's asked them to do. And so once again, we see that this, this doesn't, God's sovereignty here doesn't lead to passivity or inactivity. His people were to act. And particularly Judah in verse 68, we see that they themselves gave of free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God. Look at verse 68 in chapter 2. You were hoping I was going to preach to the names, right? I'm no, not going to do that. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of families gave freewill offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people, and the rest of Israel settled in their towns." And so the point I want to show you here is not only do they do this, but we see that God's people prepare to worship. They prepare to worship. It isn't just an incidental thing. They're not just waiting for the occasion to occur. They're returning to a land with a plan to set up the temple to aid in their worship. And, and all of this, all that we see here, the temple itself, its layout, its liturgies, its artifacts, the festivals, the music, even the compilation of the Psalms as we have them now. Remember we talked about this last summer. The five-book compilation of the Psalms as we have now came out of this period of time. They are redoing, they are completely restoring all of their approaches to worship, all of the infrastructure that they might come to the Lord in a way that is meaningful to him. And I think we should learn from this that our lives need to be a matter of discipline and preparation and worship as well. Our culture today, I think kind of, uh, not overtly, but subtly teaches us that worship is just a matter of passion that comes at a whim. I think that's false. And if you're waiting for that to happen, good luck. I find I have to discipline my heart to worship. And I have to construct it carefully. I have to curate a heart that really wants to love the Lord. John Calvin, I think, got it right when he said that our heart is an idol factory. (laughs) That's my heart. And if I don't have the disciplines of worship and coming together with the people of God to declare who he is and to learn who he is, I'll produce any number of idols. All of these structures and disciplines were purposeful liturgies to help form a heart of worship. I think we should learn from that. God's people prepare to worship. There is a simplicity and yet something profound about gathering together with the people of God. Assembling. Committing time. Sitting under the teaching of the scripture again and again and again. And serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And releasing some of our income. And yes, lifting our voices together in praise or lament. And practicing confession. These are the things that we do to tune our hearts to the heart of the Lord. And I would tell you this. If you are forsaking the assembly, you are forsaking your own heart's health and the true worship of God with God's people together. And what a privilege we have to gather safely in a place and to declare unashamedly the glory of our God. We've got a lot of great stuff ahead of us in this book. I want to close with the reading of the psalm. This is Psalm 27. Uh, I came in this morning and Pastor Josh and the worship team were warming up and Josh says, how are you going to close your service? And I said, I'm going to read a psalm. He says, which psalm are you going to read? I said, I was going to read a portion of Psalm 27. And he goes, interesting. That's what we're opening with. Uh, Just coincidence, right? Psalm 27, verse 8. My heart says of you, Seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Uh, Father, we, uh, we learn much from watching people who have come before us fail and receive your grace, and seeing you fulfill your word, and restoring them, and we see their struggle to reenact forms of worship, and yet we also learn from their successes. And so, God, we don't want to be ignorant of the past. We want to build upon it. We want to see the ways that those who have come before us have reengaged with you. And, God, we want you to have our hearts. So we pray with confidence, knowing that you are one who is sovereign over even our hearts, and you can change them where they need to be changed. And I say, Lord, on behalf of your people here in this place, change our hearts, Lord. Change them where they are wrong, where they are errant, where they are making idols, where they are off base. Father, change our hearts and bring us back to you with passion and with love and with devotion and with discipline and vigor and all that we can muster. Change our hearts, God. And may we participate in what you're doing in us. And may we be planned and disciplined and careful to guard and protect our hearts, the place from which we will live our whole lives. Give us hearts that please you, Lord. We want that more than anything. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.